Unleavened Bread Ministries presents From your hands, your feet, your side Unleavened Bread Bible Studies with David Eels Can quench my thirsting soul Purest water make me whole Let your streams of mercy flow Oh Jesus, I trust in you Greetings, saints. Many blessings to you. Thank you for joining us today for the Unleavened Bread Bible Study. Uh, Father, we love you. We praise you. We want to be like you. (laughs) And we know you've made complete provision for that, Lord, in Jesus' name. So we're putting our trust in you. We see Jesus in the mirror. Amen. So we're going to continue with We Need to Check Ourselves. This will be number three. And I'm going to share with you about manifesting Christ in us through suffering. So many have been going through suffering, and the church is about to go through great suffering. Uh, We need to learn how to handle suffering because it's one of God's greatest tools for bringing about the righteousness of Christ in us. In 1 Peter 2 and 18, we're told, Servants, be in subjection to your masters with all fear, not only the good and gentle, but also to the froward. That's unreasonable. Um, For this is acceptable. And uh, actually, the word is Greek. In Greek is grace. For this is grace. If for conscience towards God a man endures grief, suffering wrongfully. Now, we don't mind suffering rightfully, but sometimes we have a problem with suffering wrongfully. (laughs) It's all right with God for you to endure grief and suffer wrongfully because of the fruit that you will bear because of this. In 1 Peter 2 and 20, For what glory is it if when you sin and are buffeted for it? There's no reward for that, is there? Right? No. Uh, You shall take it patiently. But if when you do well and suffer for it, you shall take it patiently. This is acceptable. In other words, grace. This is grace with God. Verse 21. For hereunto were you called. In other words, you have been called to suffer for doing right. Because God, uh, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile be found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again, and when he suffered, threatened not but committed himself to him that judges righteously. So Jesus left it all in the hands of his Father. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He uh, knew all this was correct. And that Father doesn't make mistakes. So when you suffer... Is when uh, your lowest, most base instincts rise up, and especially when you're suffering at the hands of another person 
all kinds of pride and anger and rebellion come up in your heart. And um, it happens in circumstances, too. So then you, of course, have an opportunity to reject these things, right? You can become angry at circumstances, and you can sometimes even uh, become angry at inanimate objects. <laughs> or you can get angry when there's nobody else involved except God, for it's all it all comes from Him. Suffering has a way of bringing out our basest instincts. And God is bringing us through suffering because of the lusts of the flesh. And just as our example, Christ, suffered for doing good, we are to suffer for doing good too. And First Peter 3 and 14 says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, blessed are you. <laughs> And fear not their fear, neither be troubled, but sanctify in your hearts Christ as Lord. Say, okay, I'm going through this, but Jesus is the Lord of this situation. Right? So you know your first temptation when you suffer at the hands of a person or a circumstance is not to make Christ as Lord in your heart, right? It's every other fleshly desire that comes up first. But Jesus committed himself to him that judges righteously when he was suffering. In other words, he wasn't thinking of taking vengeance. He wasn't falling uh, into the flesh. He was leaving it up to God. And Peter tells you the same thing, to sanctify in your hearts Christ as Lord. 1 Peter 4 and 1. For as much then as Christ suffered in the flesh, arm ye yourselves also with the same mind. Mm -hmm. So do you have a mind like that? Not naturally. Our mind is to run from any kind of suffering in the flesh, isn't it? But our mind is to avoid it at all costs too. And you know, the thing we need the most, the thing we run from the most, is suffering. And that's because suffering brings an end to the flesh. So Christians in America especially need suffering, and suffering is coming, of course. It's coming because God wills it, and it's coming because people need to be delivered from their selfish interests and their self-centeredness. Suffering has a way of delivering you from self-centeredness. 1 Peter 4 and 1, For as much then as Christ suffered in the flesh, arm ye yourselves also with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Always. Your flesh has its own selfish desires, right? And when you deny it, it suffers. When your flesh is suffering, it's because it's not getting its way. When it's not getting its way, it's because you're not sinning. And it's so simple, isn't it? So when the old man's not getting his way, uh, you're not sinning. And so, there's, uh, so we're called to suffer in the flesh. Because then you're denying yourself. Jesus left us an example to suffer in the flesh, and we want to avoid it 
yet suffering is uh, our most precious friend. Why? Verse 2, that you no longer should live the rest of your time in the flesh to the lusts of men or desires of men, but to the will of God. So we need suffering so that we can live the rest of our life free from the bondage of the flesh, very simply, uh, as a servant of Jesus. And that's why we need suffering in the flesh. <clears throat> when we understand God's purposes in suffering, that makes it a lot easier to endure. And when we see the purpose behind it, we're not so deceived by Satan into wrestling with flesh and blood or into blaming or into anger or whatever. First Peter 4.12 Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial among you, which cometh upon you to prove you. So, when we fall into the midst of suffering, we think it's strange. We uh, think there's something not quite right about it. Uh, especially the prosperity-type teachings, you know. But we need to change our mind about that. We need to have the mind that was in Christ. We need to expect that we're going to suffer for the name of Christ. What I mean by suffer for the name of Christ is suffering so that His name, His nature, and character, uh, which is what name means, can be manifested in us. And it comes upon you to prove you and to perfect you and to purify you. 1 Peter 4, 12 Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial among you, which cometh upon you to prove you as though a strange thing happened unto you. But inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, rejoice that at the revelation of his glory, that's the result of suffering, right? Also you may rejoice with exceeding joy. If you uh, can manage to rejoice in the midst of suffering, it will be a lot easier. Everything happens easier. Uh, and as the Bible commands us in Romans 5 and 3, we also rejoice in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation worketh steadfastness or perseverance. And steadfastness, approvedness or character, and approvedness, hope. So all these things come from Rejoicing in tribulation. We're told in 1 Peter 4 and 14, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, because the Spirit of glory and the Spirit of God resteth upon you. And this is what suffering is all about, to bring about the revelation or the revealing or the manifestation of the glory of God in us. Peter goes on to say in uh, verse 19, Wherefore, let them also that suffer according to the will of God 
commit their souls in well-doing unto a faithful Creator. So we're like the clay in the Creator's hands, uh, Romans 9 and 21, when we do this. And it says Creator for a purpose because that's how God creates in us the righteousness of Christ. But suffering can be wasted uh, for he said that in the midst of suffering or a trial, we need to commit our soul in well-doing, meaning doing what is right in the midst of that trial. Otherwise, we can be wasting the suffering. The suffering is coming upon us for a reason, and the reason is to refine us and to bring about the righteousness of Christ in us. One thing we don't want to do is to waste any suffering because we don't want to go through it again to get the same thing out of us, right? So we need to make it all useful in God's kingdom. And the way to make it useful is to commit our soul and well-doing in the midst of it. We can't stop the suffering, but we can do what's right in the middle of it and make it as short as possible. (laughs) 1 Peter 5 and 8. Be sober. Be watchful. Your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom withstand steadfast in your faith, knowing that the same sufferings are accomplished in your brethren who are in the world. Don't say, well, I'll go back into the world because I wasn't suffering as bad there. Look, everybody's going to suffer. <laughs> the world suffers with the same things that we suffer with, but here's the difference. Verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you unto his eternal glory. Okay, we get eternal glory for this, right? In Christ, after that you have suffered a little while, shall himself perfect, establish, and strengthen you. Suffered a little while. Just remember, there's an end of it, right? So God's promise is that he will perfect us through suffering if we look on suffering as God's method of perfecting us that makes it much easier to, to take. And it also makes us not so willing to run away from it. So if we have a mind to please the Lord in the midst of suffering, if we have a mind to live godly, uh, first of all, we're going to suffer. Second Timothy 3 and 12. Yea, and all that would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Persecution is just one area of suffering, but those who desire to live godly are going to suffer because it's God's method of deliverance and getting us set free. I remember a guy from when I used to work at uh, Exxon many years ago, back before I was a Christian in there, uh, he was a tool man in one of the tool trailers that they hauled over to turnarounds to repair units. And whenever they were overhauling a section of the plant, they would pull one of these big tool trailers over there, and they would station a man in the trailer who would give out the tools and, of course, receive them back, kept records, right? And this one particular man uh, really stuck in my mind because I never could understand him before I became a Christian. He was disliked uh, throughout the plant. 
And it wasn't because he was evil. He was one of the most diligent workers at that time I had seen, and he was righteous. He would actually check the tools out uh, since they had to keep records so that the plant would be sure to get their tools back. Well, a lot of people didn't care if they got their tools back or not, you know. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, if they just gave you the tool, you might take it home with you, and a lot of people did. And I did it myself, too, in those days uh, before I actually knew the Lord. Um, and uh, when I became a Christian years later, I, I brought all my tools back. <laughs> Praise God. That was neat. Anyway, this guy's name was Major Pace. I'll never forget him. He was just so diligent, and you couldn't get the guy to do uh, to be emotional one way or the other. You couldn't get him to laugh, but you couldn't get him to cry, and he never cursed. He never told ugly jokes like the rest of the guys, and he was just diligent in doing his job. And if you needed something, he'd run back there and get it, and he'd put it in your hands. He was as quick as he could be, and he did his job right, right, and he did it quickly. But people disliked him. So when we'd go up to the tool trailer, and we'd see Major Pace stick his hand out for the tool, we would um, cuss because everybody wanted to get their tools for keeps, right? Everybody cursed uh, the poor guy. And I'm sure he heard uh, people do it. I wondered, uh, as I studied this man, uh, even while I was still a heathen, what makes this guy tick? He's so diligent, and what he does is right. And I never heard him cuss. I never heard him say anything about the Lord. But he did things right, and that's usually a good sign. (laughs) And he suffered for doing things right. He suffered the loss of friendship among the people for doing things right. He was willing to do it. So one day I found out, I think, what made him uh, that way. And besides, I have a sneaking hunch that he was a Christian. I learned that when he left work, he went home to an invalid wife. He spent the rest of his day cleaning his house and doing things that needed to be done, taking care of his wife, who couldn't walk or even get out of bed. And he did this year after year. He suffered in this way for many years, and I suspect that suffering put such peace in him that he didn't mind if people didn't like him, as long as he was doing what was right for the Lord. That's my suspicion. And, of course, as a heathen, I couldn't understand what made the man tick. But what would what would drive a man to do what was right when everyone hated him uh, for it? Uh, it was suffering. I'm convinced it was suffering. So why do you think the Lord tells us to resist not him that is evil? Matthew 5 and 39. I'll tell you what, if you do that, you'll suffer, won't you? You'll suffer internally and you'll suffer externally. First of all, you'll suffer internally because 
when you resist not him that is evil, every lust of your heart is going to rise up on the inside of you. You know what I'm talking about. It happens, doesn't it? You suffer. You suffer on the inside, and you'll even suffer on the outside. For example, I've had people rebuke me because I would not do something to somebody that they thought I should have done as payback. And people were really angry with me and fell out with me, not wanting to talk to me anymore. <laughs> so, so you'll suffer when you resist not him that is evil. And uh, God designed his commandments and his principles so that they'd cause you to suffer. And if you obey God's word and sanctify in your heart Christ as Lord in the midst of that suffering, you're going to bear the pain of that in your flesh. You're going to feel it in your flesh. So the Christian church has made a big thing out of martyrdom, and rightly so, because martyrdom is a big thing. But, but what do you think is greater, to have a sudden end of your life for standing up for Jesus or go through a slow process of death because you're continually standing up for Jesus. Uh, for example, faithfully bearing with some unthankful, obnoxious people for years. You know what that brings? It brings a slow death to self. It's suffering that brings death. Or how about an abusive husband? Uh, you you put up with that for years and you stayed faithful to the Lord in that, well, that suffering is going to bring about a death in you. God is working in you. Or it can be a nagging wife or an obnoxious neighbor or fellow workers or factious people who abuse all around them with slander, etc., etc. So, that's your opportunity right there. It can be circumstances that keep coming against you, causing frustrations to rise up. That's your opportunity. You recognize it and you reject it. That suffering has come in order to work Christ in you, in order to bring the glory of God in you. That's what it's all about. God has designed everything, even sickness. The Lord also designed healing. But we don't have to take redemption at the expense of suffering, and we don't have to take suffering at the expense of redemption because they work hand in hand. And you may have uh, faith that, that God has healed you at Calvary, and between here and when your healing manifests, there may be some suffering. It's during that suffering where you'll have to, a chance to deny or accept Christ and his word and his ways. And you can patiently take suffering, rejoicing like the scripture tells you, or you can fail in it all the time, believing that you're healed. And if you believe that you're healed, uh, healing is going to come. It may happen in days, hours, immediately, or it may take years, but God still expects you to confess what the Word says while you're suffering. So don't waste the suffering that you go through on self-pity or animosity or anger or rebellion 
especially don't waste the sufferings that you go through with rebellion. When Jesus was going to the cross, he said in Luke 22 and 42, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. The cup of what? Well, it was the cup of suffering at the hands of the wicked. Jesus wasn't going to take it away or run from it. But he said, Father, if it's your will, take it away. Aha. Uh-huh. And we know it wasn't God's will to take away his cup of suffering. Jesus went through it patiently. He didn't stand up for himself. First Peter 2 and 23 When he was reviled, he reviled not again, and when he suffered, uh, threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. He just put himself in the Father's hands, and he suffered patiently. That's suffering that's not wasted. Suffering that's wasted is if you act in the flesh in the midst of it. It's wasted because it's just coming around again to get that out of you. So we need to have the mind of Christ, 1 Peter 4 and 1. For as much then as Christ suffered in the flesh, arm ye yourselves also with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. There you go. Now when he says flesh, of course, he's not just talking about your body He's talking about that thing in you that wants to serve your body, right? And 1 John 1 and 9, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins, forgive us of our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A great promise. And people don't use this enough to get rid of the the sin nature. So, you get a cleansing either way. If you're humble enough to confess your sins, he is faithful enough to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You're going to get your cleansing. Have faith in that. You can't waste suffering in depression and self-pity if you're rejoicing. You can't do both at the same time. That's why he commands you to rejoice in the midst of suffering. And he says to give thanks. And if you realize uh, what suffering is for, then you can give thanks because it is for your perfecting. Jesus became perfect through the things that he suffered, Hebrews 5 and 8. 1 John 3 and 16 says, Hereby know we love, that's agape love, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So this is your old life. It's the lusts of the flesh. This is your anger, your resentment, your rebellion, etc. This is what you're laying down, and this is agape. It's agape to lay that down. It says, hereby we know love, agape, because he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Agape love is to lay down our life. Agape is the opposite of the flesh life. Love is the opposite of the flesh life. 
of giving in to the flesh life. The Bible says in 1 John 4 and 7, Beloved, let us love, agape, one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is begotten or born, same word, born of God, and knoweth God. You see, we are being born from above. It's not an instantaneous thing, uh, except in your spirit. Your soul has to come into this through trials and tribulations, mostly. So you must be born of God to have agape love. If you don't agape, you don't know God. That's what he just said. So what is this agape? Well, first of all, this agape is God. First John 4 and 8. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. So there you go. Agape is God. Now, let me show you what else agape is. First John 5 and 3. For this is the love, agape, of God, that we keep His commandments. Now, we run into people all the time that ignore you about showing them the commandments because they're disobeying them, just totally ignore you, and you know they don't love God. They claim to. They claim to love you, but they don't love either. Okay. And they certainly don't love themselves because they're destroying themselves. So this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. Agape is God, and it's obeying the Word. Who is the Word? God, right? Uh, obedience to the Word, submission to the Word, that's love. That is agape love. Agape is different from the other two common types of love, eros, which is sexual love, and philos, which is a friendship kind of love. Both of these are contingent upon other people's activity towards you, but agape is not. It's only contingent upon the life of Christ on the inside of you. You can agape somebody who doesn't even like you. <laughs> agape, agape is not emotion. Uh, sexual love and friendship love can be emotion, and emotions are very unstable. But agape is not emotion, and it's not unstable. Don't worry about feeling really emotional about loving God. He has commanded you to agape Him. And agape is obedience to His Word. You prove your love to Him by your obedience to His Word. Jesus said in John 14 and 15, If you love agape me, you will keep my commandments. And he also said in 23, If a man love agape me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. Pay attention to that. There's condition there. Agape is the only love that you have to learn. You have to learn to obey God. So you learn agape. Agape is bringing your old man to the cross. It's laying down your life for other people. It's giving up your self-centeredness. 1 John 3 and 16, right? All that is agape. 
You understand now why Peter couldn't give uh, what the Lord wanted him to give in uh, John 21 and 16 when the Lord asked Peter, Lovest thou me? The Lord was asking, Do you agape me, Peter? Now think about it. Peter had just come through the biggest failure in his life, or or at least that's what he felt, or at least he thought so, right? Because he denied the Lord three times. That was John 18 and 27. He failed completely to obey, to humble himself to what was right. And after this failure, the Lord asked Peter in uh, John 21 and 15, Simon, son of John, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love that's phileo love, meaning friendship. Thee, thou knowest that I love. The Lord was asking for agape love, and he was getting back friendship love. And I guess Peter was not so sure of himself now that he was able to obey because he had just failed. Peter knew he couldn't confess to being obedient, to loving the Lord enough to be obedient, to what was right because he had just failed the Lord. And I'm sure he was having to overcome this weakness in himself, and he had lost his self-confidence, which is a good thing. Um, I'll bet before he lost his self-confidence that he would have said, Oh, yes, Lord, I agape you, you see. In fact, in a way, he did. He said in Matthew 26 and 35, Even if I must die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Uh Uh-oh. Well, there was that self-confidence, and the Lord knew he had to get rid of that. Um, Our confidence has got to be in God, right? He believed that he could obey of himself. But after that, he lost all this self-confidence, and he wasn't even willing to speak the word agape. The Lord asked him three times, Do you agape me? But Peter said, I phileo you. And it grieved Peter. Why do you think Peter was so grieved? He was feeling condemnation by the fact that he knew he couldn't. He knew he hadn't been able to agape the Lord. Peter was uh, learning through suffering uh, to agape. So we become perfect. Perfect is obeying the word, uh, and perfect is agape. We learn to agape by obeying the word through suffering. Agape comes from the inner nature of the spiritual man, and it is conquering the carnal man. It is giving up your life. First John 3 and 16. Suffering brings about this Agape love. Agape is the nature. It is the way of God's kingdom. If that is God, and what we're looking for is godliness, then we can't help but be, as an end result, agape. We can't help but be love. So God is love. God is agape. What would his children have to be? The same thing. So when Paul described agape, 
He said, it's more important than speaking in tongues, more important than knowledge, more important than faith. In fact, he said, if you had these things but didn't have love, you were nothing. <laughs> Ooh. 1 Corinthians 13 and 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am becomes a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And if I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and if I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profiteth me nothing. Wow. So the end result of everything that God wants to do in you is agape. He said in 1 Corinthians 13 and 13, But now abideth faith, hope, and love, these three. And the greatest of these is love, agape. The most important thing that's going to get you into God's kingdom is love. 1 Corinthians 13 and 4 says, Love suffereth long. How do you get long-suffering? That's right. You suffer a long time with people, with things, with circumstances. You get a long-suffering by going through a lot of suffering with people and circumstances. The Lord said, oh, how long shall I be with you? You know, he, he knew what suffering was. Being a righteous person, he knew what suffering was. Just being around his disciples to begin with, right? So there's no other way. And uh, love, of course, goes on to say, is kind. Love envieth not. Why? Because self is the opposite of agape. Love vaunteth not itself. In other words, it doesn't put itself forward. It's not self-centered or egotistical. It's not puffed up. Verse 5, It doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not its own, and is not provoked. So how do you stop being provoked? Well, you believe Jesus bore that sin on the cross, so you would have to power, you'd have power over it. And that may be the end of it. But also, you may become hardened to being provoked by having an opportunity over and over to be provoked and denying it. You know, it's dying when you deny it. You may suffer with it until you give it up, in other words. You may overcome by degrees. Uh, this failure is not as bad as the last failure, right? And overcoming is uh, that way sometimes, but suffering can last for years. If you uh, jump out of the fire, if you aren't like uh, Ephraim, a cake unturned, Hosea 7 and 8, uh, thou quickest the way is to walk and talk by faith while you stay in the fire. That's right. That's the quickest way. All who desire to please the Lord and are willing to suffer are going to overcome. Believe you have received everything that you ask of the Lord in any 
against any sin that you've got. Mark 11 and 24. It's clear. But even then, it's not always manifested overnight. And suffering is necessary to crucify the flesh. That's why we can't escape it. Uh, here's some crucifying words again. Uh, love in 1 Corinthians 13 and 5. Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not its own, is not provoked, taketh not account of evil, rejoiceth not in unrighteousness, but rejoiceth with the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and endureth all things. Love never faileth. So love for God and man motivates us to crucify the self-life, right? So love is obeying the Word of God. That This is love. Agape is not the mushy feelings of eros or phileo. Uh, agape is mostly obeying. Feeling will come later. If you want emotional feelings towards God, well, then agape Him. Your emotions are uh, uh, more subject to the flesh than they are to the spirit or something he can deal with. Okay? You just keep uh, following the Lord, and the Lord will bring your emotions to serve him. But it doesn't always happen at the first, but it will happen. Obey first. Let the emotions follow the spirit. God can change them. So what does he mean by believeth all things? Does that mean you're gullible? <laughs> no, we hope not. Uh, I guess it's not being willing to think the worst of somebody. You can always believe for people and try to think that somebody has a good motive for what they're doing. It's easier to think that than to always think the worst because you're going to deal falsely with this person. You can't deal in faith with this person. And if you always think the, the worst of them, you're going to fail them and yourself. So you're not going to be able to believe for them and turn the other cheek either. So it's best just to think on these things, Philippians 4 and 8 says. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honorable, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. The devil would have us dwell on other people's failures and problems and how they should have treated us and so on and so forth. And all this is counterproductive. You know, Paul says it's better to just think on these things because you can deal with people like that. And if you're meditating on what is evil about them, you're going to fail in your reaction to who they are. Love in 1 Corinthians 13 and 5 says, Doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not its own, is not provoked, and taketh not account of evil. So, we, we have a pretty good revelation here of what is agape. 
here's a, a revelation uh, we called Eternal Relationship, Anonymous, 328-23. I was in prayer and heard the following. Do you forgive me? Look past everyone and everything, and I am. And his note here is, Our perspective is beyond the superficial to the eternal treasures beneath, uh, to the source and creator of all. Well, amen. When you don't forgive someone or when you have a regret for something in your past, have you forgiven sins? Or are you wishing your life had been different? Then you're shaming me. You aren't forgiving me when you do this. And his note is unforgiveness leads to separation from God. This is true. I am behind everything. And I am the creator of all. And I have written all. I know more than you could ever understand. And my ways are greater than yours. In Isaiah 55, 8 through 9, it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. I perfectly and intricately designed each and every aspect of your entire life and existence, the good and the bad. Yeah, my thought it was immediately, uh, John 3 and 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it have been given him from heaven. You're not in, an, in any kind of an accident. You're not, <laughs> there's no such thing in God's kingdom. Nothing I do is evil as I am love. But I created the evil out of love. The contrast of the two shows how perfect and awesome our God is. His footnote is, it says here. Isaiah 45 and 7, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I am the Lord that doeth all these things. Yep. Sometimes don't tend to think about God that way, but he is. Read our book, Sovereign God. You will see it is true. Trust me and forgive me. When you don't forgive anyone or anything, you are rebelling against me. Now, First Samuel 15 and 23 says, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as, the, as idolatry and teraphim. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. He goes on, just like Lucifer, do you really think you can live without me? I know you know that you can't, so forgive me. If you don't forgive me, I can't forgive you. Well, Jesus said that, right? And I have already done everything for you. I paid the price for you, and you will forever eternally be grateful for all that I have done and everything you have gone through. <clears throat> and, and he has footnote here, including all evil and suffering. Yes, that's true. It's all for a purpose. 
A man can receive nothing except it come from heaven. All the evil and hurt you have experienced, seen and known about, hurts me more than it hurts you. That's Isaiah 53, isn't it? But focus on me and my goodness. I had to create and allow the evil so that you could appreciate me forever and so you could see how good I am. Well, my thought was also evil in you reaps evil, a cause for repentance. Evil chastens evil and causes us to count the cost. He went on, This is not just for you, but for all of my creation, that all of my creation could see my grace, my mercy, my eternal love. And yes, and that's that's through you as a testimony for sure, right? My ways are much higher than yours, and I know that you will forever be grateful. All the evil is to humble you and uh, for you to learn or lean on me 100% as only I can help you and heal you and save you. And I have already done these things, but you need to believe and receive my finished works. In praising and thanking me, you receive your greatest joy and heart's desire, and any other pleasure outside of me is false and not true and not eternal. Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, Vanity. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Yes. So look at the fallen angels. They have no real pleasure, no peace, no satisfaction, no joy. They have nothing without me. They had to be let go. And that was because of rebellion, of course. Uh, for you to fully appreciate me and receive me and praise me and to see that I am all good and that there is no one else. You will understand more over time. The more you open to me, the more understanding you receive. But right now you need to forgive me in full for everything. To all people who have ever hurt you, and all the people doing evil out there, I say, forgive me. All the past regret that you have from your old life and all the mistakes and failures you make in forgiving yourself, you forgive me. For you will have complete freedom and completeness in joy when you forgive me. I have been with you for your whole existence. Through the good and the evil, I have been there with my hand on your shoulder. I know all the pain and the suffering that you have endured. Only I understand. But I only know the freedom and satisfaction that you can and will have when you let go and completely forgive me. Let me search your heart. Let me uh, reveal and open your eyes to the full truth which I can only do when you allow it. I can only show you and allow you to understand what you allow me to. I want to manifest the complete 100% deliverance and cleansing and sanctification from all evil, which the price has already been paid for. 
You all are one in me now, and for eternity. Let go of all the things that are hindering you from being one with me and my people. Everyone here with me is one, and I desire for all uh, of you to be with me in full. And when he said all, he said, I felt all meant 100%. Yeah. Uh, I desire to manifest my holy kingdom through you in full, not part, while on earth. Let me, allow me, ask me to help you, ask me for grace, ask me to help you rest in my finished works. Well, who could do better than the creator of all, right? He knows exactly how to create us, and we're in that process, by the way. It's not finished. You have not because you ask not. You think you cannot hear or see me now because of doubt and unbelief. But I am always speaking to you, and I desire to talk to you more than you speak to the closest person to you. Who do you speak to the most? Is it your spouse or your best friend? I am your eternal husband and your eternal best friend. Talk with me more. Commune with me more. I desire to do everything with you, little and small. I created you for me every moment, not just for a certain period of time each day, but for every moment of your breath. I am your breath. Include me in everything in the physical things and in the spiritual and in your mind. Just to share a little note with you, when I take a walk down the mountain, uh, I ask my Father and His glorious Son to go with me. And they do. And they say that they go with me because they are in me. (laughs) They've told me that. We're, We're always going with you because we're in you. Amen. So let your mind stay on me. The devils will do anything to take your mind off of me. Stay focused on me. When you realize that you're thinking of something else, think on me. Yeah, verse that came to me was Matthew 6 and 24. No one can serve two lords, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. I will always take care of all your needs. Stop trying to do it yourself and in your own way. Get out of your familiar physical routines and let me take control of your day. When you include me in your day and seek me and allow me to take care of your needs, you will have a greater joy and peace and greater communion with me than you have ever experienced. Every day that you receive more of me will get more wonderful physically and spiritually than you could currently comprehend. There is so much I desire to show you and do with you each day, now and forever, but allow me. Come to me for your daily bread. And if you are hungry, Press into me for more. I want to give you more. But I can only do 
what you allow me to. Forgive me and let me do it and let me live through you my way. And when you don't let me manifest through you, it's because you don't forgive me. Let go of the evil and hurt that you are holding on to. Allow me to open your eyes to hidden rebellion. Only I can heal and restore your soul. Only I can put you back together in whole and fullness. I am life. Forgive me, my child, my son, my eternal wife, my friend. It is only you and I for all eternity, you and me forever. I am in all and through all eternal. Only my spirit will be and already is. Forgive me and commune with me each moment in the physical and spiritual I love you beyond understanding and beyond words. Accept my love and forgive me. I am all. Yeah, reminds you of John 3 and 13. And no one hath ascended into heaven, but he that descended out of heaven. So it's Jesus in you that's going to heaven, right? Flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Remember, that spiritual man is eternal. All right, saints, God bless you and keep you. I pray this uh, is a blessing to you. Uh, Michael Hare is going to come, and the brethren uh, will receive a good word through him. I pray and believe in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello, saints. Good to be back with you again. Let's go to the Lord. Father, in the name of Jesus, Father, I thank you for your word. It's the standard by which we live by, Father. And I praise you for it, Lord, that you are renewing our minds daily with the Word, Lord. And I praise you that you're doing it, Lord. I thank you, Father, that uh, you're teaching us how to speak and how to walk and how to act as a true believer of Christ. And I praise you for that, Father. I thank you, Lord, that you're preparing us for the days ahead when our confession means everything. And I thank you, Lord, that you're doing that. And I ask for your anointing today to encourage the people out there, Lord, uh, with faith. And I thank you, Lord, that uh, people's eyes and ears of understanding are going to be opened up to receive in the name of Jesus. And we thank you for it, Lord. Well, all right, that's what I want to talk about a little bit today is uh, how we talk, confessions of the mouth. You know, we're commanded to watch what we say by the Lord. In Proverbs 16:20 it says, "He that giveth heed unto the word shall find good, and whoso trusteth in the Lord, happy is he. The wise in heart shall be called prudent, and the sweetness of the lips increaseth learning." So we see in over in Exodus 15 that when Moses and the children of Israel Going out into the wilderness, they went to Mara, and that word Mara, of course, if you uh, uh, in in Hebrew means bitterness. They couldn't drink that water there because it was killing them. It was death to them when they drank it. And you know something? The thing that's killing God's people right now are the words that come out of their mouth. They're not 
confessing the good confession before men. Matthew fifteen eleven it says, Not that which entereth into the mouth defileth the man, but that which proceedeth out of the mouth, this defileth the man. It's that spring that comes from out of man that's both a blessing and a curse, uh, as James tells us in chapter 3. Out of that same spring there ought not to come sweet water and bitter water. So the sweetness of the lips are the words transformed from a renewed mind and in obedience to the Word of God. If you speak the Word of God, it's going to increase your learning. Proverbs 16.22 says, Understanding is a wellspring of life unto him that hath it, but the correction of fools is their folly. Well, how come? Well, it's because what we understand comes out of our innermost being, and it flows right over our tongue. Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 63, It is the Spirit that giveth life. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I have spoken unto you are spirit and are life. Now, chapter 7 and verse 38, He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, from within him shall flow rivers of living water. Verse 39, But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believed on him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. How come that the Spirit gives us these living waters? Well, as Jesus said, the words that I have spoken unto you are spirit and are life. Those words go into us, and when they do, the Holy Spirit brings to remembrance all things that he said unto us. It says in John 14 and 26, and then it brings them out of us. A lot of you have felt the anointing to speak to people. And you know, it's, man, it is real sweet when you're able to speak to people, give them a good word from God, and, it's, and you find out that it's something that they needed for the moment. It comes flowing out of you, and it touches their heart and encourages them. And you know what? You get overjoyed by that as well. That's that wellspring of life that comes out of you. And God has got a lot more of that for all of us. And so we need to teach our mouth, don't we? Proverbs 16 and 23. The heart of the wise instructeth his mouth. So we need to instruct our mouth and addeth learning to his lips. So it's real important to come in agreement with God's word, right? So we need to train our mouth. And you know what? You can get the people around you to help you do it too. We need to help each other to say things that are in agreement with the word of God, the blessings that God wants us to speak. In Numbers 30, the Lord explains that somebody in authority, in a family, or in a fellowship, can disallow or not accept rash utterance spoken out of somebody. And don't be offended if somebody does that to you. Sometimes we make a mistake, and we just need to back up and say, God, forgive me for saying that stupid thing. I don't want to talk that way. I want to agree with your word. I want to speak the blessings and not the curses, because I'm capable, Lord, of doing that too. Remember what Proverbs 18.21 says, is death and life are in the power of the tongue. You know, it's supernatural. When we speak the word and we call it the things that are not as though they were, we may be speaking something 
that we can't see with their eyes. But you know what? Our tongue has the power to bring it to pass. God hears our tongue, and he hears that we're agreeing with him and his word. And so what happens? He imparts the grace to bring it to pass. Verse 24, pleasant words are as a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bones. Most of you know your life proceeds from your bone, from the bone marrow. That's where your blood's made. So speak and agree that you are blessed, healed, and delivered from the curse of the world so God can bring it on to pass. Your faith goes up to God through your high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, Hebrews 3 and 1 tells us. When we speak in faith, he gives that to the Father. He offers that up before the Father, it says in Matthew 10. That's our sacrifice. We're sacrificing that old life when we say these things because they're contrary to our old life and our old human nature. And the Lord Jesus will offer these words of faith before the Father, and you're going to receive His grace for it. Praise God. Awesome promises. Proverbs 15 and 28. The heart of the righteous studieth to answer, but the mouth of the wicked poureth out evil things. So study the word in order to know how to answer people and how to agree. People wonder sometimes how they can answer others when believing God that they're healed and others can see that they're not. You got to remember what Jesus said. Everyone therefore who shall confess me before men, all right, here it comes. Him will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. Matthew ten, thirty two and thirty three. And what does confession mean? It means to speak the same as. What does the word say? It says, By whose stripes ye were healed in first Peter two twenty four. You gonna confess that? Are you gonna confess that you believe God and that you trust his word? And will you confess before men? I ain't walking by sight. I'm going to accept God's healing, praise God. And when you do that, you're going to see miracles and you're going to see the power of God come on you. And if you'll do the same thing with your soul, remember Romans 6 and 11. He said, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God. And begin to speak it out of your mouth. God's going to give you grace. And it's not because you trusted in your power, but in God's power. You're coming into agreement with him. And you and him are walking hand in hand together. (laughs) Praise God. You know, there's a lot of Christians out there that are wicked. So-called Christians. They don't agree with God. And they're walking contrary to God's word. And they're calling God a liar every time they open up their mouth. You know, God is our Savior. And He's taken care of everything that we need. He has delivered us. He's healed us. And He has blessed us. He is our Savior in all things. And He's going to protect us under the shadow of His wing, He said. The word righteous in the Hebrew is the same or the equivalent to the same word in the Greek for justification. Romans chapter 3 and verse 4 says, God forbid, yea, let God be found true, but every man a liar as it is written, that thou mightest be justified or counted righteous in thy words, and mightest prevail when thou comest into judgment. And that person that's righteous or justified 
He is the one that's determined to agree and confess with God. We need that justification of the Lord. And the person who's walking in the light as he is in the light, like it says in 1 John 1, 17, receives understanding from God. And he wants to agree with the word and speak it. And you know what? God wants to hear it too. The Lord does not hold anything against it. Rather, it's the words that we're speaking that are bringing us under the curse most of the time. And therefore, as we add understanding to our soul and we learn through our lips and we begin to speak in agreement with what the Bible says, then we're going to come out from under that curse, praise God. That's God's plan. We need to learn to be quiet in, in, in many places until we can speak the Word of God. Too many of us shoot from the hip too often. We're way far too impulsive. And people who are ruled by their emotions are impulsive, and they often say things that they wish they hadn't said. And when that happens, you need to repent, and we need to learn how to be quiet and not speak out of our emotion. And that's going to take a little bit of practice, but we can do it with God's help. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. For to draw nigh to hear is better than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they know not that they do evil. You know, we know that we are the house of God. And everywhere we go, we need to keep our foot, right? And also, in the midst of the brethren, we've got to be sure that we're agreeing with the word. It's better to hear than speak the sacrifice of fools. And that's speaking rashly out of your mouth. And that includes things that you don't know about. Sometimes we just like to talk, don't we? Well, it's best just to, just to hush for a while. Even Job, who was a perfect and an upright man in the eyes of the Lord, because he was justified by faith, spoke things he didn't know about. And what happened? He repented in dust and ashes for the self-righteousness that was coming out of his mouth. Job 42. You know, it'd be better if we'd learn to be quiet and speak only when spoken to by the Lord. Verse 2 in Ecclesiastes 5, it says, Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thy heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. Listen, God's an awesome ruler, and he doesn't get the respect that he ought to get from us. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We need to understand that. Let your words be few. And you know God's on the throne. He, Since he's on the throne, he's sovereign. And a man can receive nothing except it have been given him from heaven. John chapter 3 and verse 27. And, and Ephesians 1 11 says, He worketh all things after the counsel of his will. We need to be careful about what we say in front of God. We need to honor Him, humble ourselves, and just keep that old flesh silent. If you let that flesh talk, and soon 
He thinks he's got a right to talk. He doesn't have a right to since that dead man's dead. They don't speak, do they? Dead men don't speak. Your flesh, that dead flesh, doesn't have any rights in this world anymore. Romans 6 and 11 says, Reckon yourselves to be dead unto sin. So if you take that old dead man, what happens when you slap him on the cheek? He turns the other way. That's you. You don't do a thing. Your flesh man don't do nothing. With the tongue, it should be the same way. Dead men don't speak. Your flesh does not speak. Tell him to shut up and let the word of God come forth out of your spiritual man. That's all it ought to be coming out of there. Praise God. Matthew 12 and 37. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Now, some people think that's talking about speaking ugly or speaking curses. I'm telling you, any time you disagree with the Word of God, it's a curse. Jesus said, if you aren't for him, then you are against him. Matthew 12, 30 and Luke 11, 23. So you are either in agreement with God or you're not. There ain't no gray area. There ain't no fence out there. <laughs> you're not sitting on a fence. You're either for him or you're against him. Now, I'm not saying that we have to sit there and quote the Word of God, but we ought to be in agreement with me. With, with the Word of God. We should be training our tongue to come into agreement with the Word of God. You know something? That makes God so happy. It makes us dynamite to everything around us. And power is coming forth out of us when we are in agreement with the Word. And you know what that power does? It heals the sick. It delivers the bound up. And it turns their hearts but you know our words still ought to be few. Proverbs 17 and 27 says, He that spareth his words hath knowledge, and he that is of a cool spirit is a man of understanding. So we need to learn to be quiet. You can't hear nothing when you're talking. You want to listen to the Holy Spirit? He knows what's going on around you, and he knows what's there before you get there. So we need to listen to him, don't we? You can't listen to him while you're talking. You need to listen. Hush and just listen for him. Verse 28, Even a fool, when he holdeth his peace, is counted wise. When he shutteth his lips, he is esteemed as prudent. Well, that gives us a lot of hope, don't it? Just to keep quiet when we don't need to be speaking. God at least imputes some righteousness for being quiet. Proverbs 10 and 19 says, In the multitude of words there wanteth not, no lack of, transgression. But he that refraineth his lips doeth wisely. In other words, if you're a big talker and you sit out there and you talk a lot, you just like to hear yourself rattle, there's a high likelihood that you're doing a lot of sinning as well. And a person that talks all the time because they just enjoy hearing themselves talk ought to be careful. Verse 20 says, The tongue of the righteous is as choice silver. The heart of the wicked is little worth. Now the righteous choose what they're going to say because their words are valuable to them like silver. Verse 21, The lips of the righteous feed many, but the foolish die for lack of understanding. Listen to me now. Spiritually and physically, our words are very powerful. And when the time comes in the tribulation in this coming wilderness come ahead of us, 
we're going to see how spoken words are going to deliver everything that's needed and everything that's necessary for life itself. And the righteous are going to once again live by faith in the days to come because God has already got it designed that way. Proverbs 29 and 20. Seest thou a man that is hasty in his words? There's more hope of a fool than of him. Why is it that a person is hasty and he speaks before he thinks? Because they're ruled by their emotions and they're not ruled by the Spirit. People that are ruled by the Spirit are listening a lot. They want to know what God has to say. And they want to know what He wants to say through them. They want to know what the Word of God has to say and they want to speak from the renewed mind. But that person who is hasty and he's shooting from the hip from his word, there's more hope in a fool than of him, the Word said. Proverbs twenty-one twenty-three: Whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from troubles. So, we need to ask the Lord to put a watch before our lips. But at the same time, we need to restrain words and thoughts that are of the world. When you get in among the worldly people, and if you are apt to join them in speaking in their worldly ways, the best thing to do is repent and separate yourself from them until you've broken that habit, right? Well, amen to that. We all need to do that. And then we need to get in the Word of God and train our lips to speak as only He would speak. Give knowledge to our lips. The troubles come out of our mouth because you agree with the curse, you get the curse, and then you give it to everybody around you. You agree with the blessing. You get and you give the blessings to those around you. Okay? If you agree with the curse, you get the curse. You agree with the blessings, you get the blessing. So we need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Praise God. James chapter 1 and verse 19. You know this, my beloved brethren. But let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. So if we just slow down and we give up that impulsiveness, we're going to have time for the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Our conscience will guide us if we're slow to speak. That impulsiveness don't, doesn't come from a spirit-led life, but it comes from a fleshly-led life and from the impulsiveness of our emotions. And God wants to win us away from being ruled by emotions. We're only to be led by the Word of God. Sometimes God's got to do things to stop us from speaking because He has an agenda that He wants carried out. We're supposed to be His vessels through whom He speaks this agenda. And if we speak contrary to that, we can hinder it. You remember, there been lots of times in the Word of God, in the Gospels, that uh, Jesus put people out of the room when they spoke unbelief so that he could go ahead and perform the miracle. He didn't want anybody speaking against him. And he didn't, or giving any credit to their foolish talk about this miracle. Over in Luke chapter 1, remember, Zacharias the priest, the angel told him he was promised a miraculous child, and that would have been John the Baptist. And you know what happened? Zechariah spoke against it. Look at this. Luke chapter 1 and verse 18. And Zechariah said unto the angel, 
Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife well stricken in years. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel that stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak unto thee and to bring thee these good tidings. In other words, don't you got any respect, Zechariah? What are the words in the Bible? They are the words of the Almighty God. And so we ought to have some respect. And Zechariah wasn't having any kind of respect for this angel, was he? He was questioning whether the blessing would be fulfilled. Now here's an angel that was in the presence of God when he gave him this blessing. Here's what he told him, though. Verse 20. And behold, thou shalt be silent and not able to speak until the day that these things shall come to pass, because thou believest not my words which shall be fulfilled in their season. The Lord had to shut him up, didn't he? Here Zacharias was speaking to Kirk, and he was going to hinder the blessing. Now God stands behind his word. And when he says that what you say makes a difference, God means it. Not that you're any kind of a great man, but that he has given us authority on this earth to do these things. And, and the Lord has delegated his authority, and he, he's not taking it back. Jesus came to do mighty works. And people sometimes think that he was an exception since he was the Son of God. Talking about Jesus. In John 5 and 27, And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And he was given this authority because Jesus was the Son of Man. Why? Because God gave authority on earth to man. Psalms 8 and 4 through 6. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the Son of Man that thou visitest him? Thou makest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. God has given authority on this earth to man himself. That's why he wants to move through man just as he moved through Jesus, the Son of Man. Now, Jesus had authority to exercise judgment because he was the Son of Man. Zacharias was given authority to execute judgment or blessing, depending on what came out of his mouth. But he didn't believe, did he? And what happened? Them negative words came out of his mouth, and they were trying to hinder God. How can you hinder God? Because God has given us his authority, and he's not going to take it back. However, sometimes he has to move people out of the way in order to do what he wants to do because they're just a hindrance with their mouth, with their actions. You might be wondering right now why the Lord doesn't use you. Well, probably because he can't. Amos 3 and 3 says, Shall two walk together except they have agreed? So we want God to be able to speak through us all of these blessings, these miracles, these signs and wonders, don't we? Everything that Jesus did, we want to do. He spoke it. Everything that Jesus did, he spoke it before it came to pass. And that's what we do too. So we need to call the things that are not as though they were, Romans 4 and 17, or speak them before they happen. So Jesus wants to be able to do this through us, but we can't speak against what his will is, because if we do, sometimes the Lord has to get us out of the way and use somebody else. And I'm going to tell you something. Sometimes getting moved out of the way ain't pleasant either. 
wasn't for Zacharias, was it? He lost, he lost his voice for a while. He couldn't speak a word. So we want to thank the Lord for putting a watch over our lips. James chapter 3 and verse 8 says, The tongue can no man tame. It is a restless evil. It's real destructive. Ecclesiastes 5 and chapter, uh, chapter 5 and verse 1 says, Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. For to draw nigh to hear is better than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they know not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thy heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. And I think what we're going to discover is that the reason that we need to be careful before God is because we're always before the court of heaven. Right now, there's literally a court going on and has to do with our words being judged. What you reckon that our words are revealing? Matthew 12 and 34 says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So our words give proof of what's in our heart. And we're in the midst of court, being judged according to Matthew 12. Look at verse 36. And I say unto you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Idle words are unfruitful words. That's the evidence of what's in your heart. And you know, we're standing in God's courtroom, and the devil is sitting there as our prosecutor. And here we got Jesus as our defense attorney. And just like in any court, words have to do with who's guilty and who's not. And a good example is over in Job. Let's look at uh, verse 6 in chapter 1. Now it came to pass on the day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, that Satan, that word Satan, of course, you know, means accuser or our adversary, also came among them. Here's the devil. He's a prosecuting attorney, okay? Revelation 12 and 10. And I heard a great voice in heaven saying, Now is come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down who accuseth them before our God day and night. And here you got the devil as a prosecuting attorney. He's accusing us every day. Before God, day and night, 24-7. And over in Job, that's exactly what he was doing. That's why he was in the midst of the sons of God, so that he may accuse them, just as his name means. If you translate it, that's what it means. Job chapter 1 and verse 7, And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And if you'll notice, God sticks up for Job every time before Satan. Now, he wants to teach Job a few things. And, of course, Job has a few things to learn. But Job is doing what he knows to do. He's walking in the light that he has. And you can't do better than what you know to do, right? And God knows that. James 4 and 17 said, It is to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Job's not doing what he knows to be sin, okay? 
Job chapter 1 and verse 8. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? Oh, there's the bait. For there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and turneth away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? And if you'll notice, the Lord is on Job's side, and he sticks up for it. But at the same time, he wants this trial to go on, or he wouldn't have brought it to Satan's attention, right? Verse 10, Hast not thou made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thy hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will renounce thee to thy face. And here's Satan over there. He's thinking. He ain't thinking correctly, but he's thinking. He has the opinion that Job's going to speak out against God. And you know something? That ain't uncommon for Christians today to speak words against God and to disagree with what his promises in his word clearly state in the word. Verse 12, And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thy hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. And as you know, as you read the story, Satan sent four strong judgments against Job. Here we had the Sabians attack. Then the fire of God fell. And then the Chaldeans attacked. And then they had a great wind that smote the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young men, and so on and so forth. And then Job spoke. What did he say? Now, this is what the devil wants. In the midst of all these trials he puts us through, he wants us to speak things for which he can accuse us. He wants to prosecute us and to prove that what's in our heart is not the kingdom of God. Verse 20, Then Job arose, and rent his robe, and shaved his head, and fell down upon the ground, and worshipped. Man, how many of you could do that? How many of you could get up and worship after you've gone through the things that he went through? Verse 21, He said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this Job sinned not nor charged God foolishly. He didn't charge God foolishly. Man, people today, they suffer far less setbacks today, and they go on and they blast God foolishly. Even with the little old minor things, they don't realize they're speaking against the Word of God and that they're charging God foolishly. The next stroke on Job was on his body with boils, and at that point, his wife uttered foolishly. Job chapter 2 and verse 9. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still hold fast thine integrity? Renounce God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall not we receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5, in verse 6, it says, Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. And we found out that in James chapter 3, the tongue turns the whole body, right? 
if you speak negatively or in, in disagreement and you speak in unbelief of God's promises, you're going to pay a penalty for those idle words. He said that those idle words are going to cause you to be condemned because you're not in agreement with him. You're renouncing everything that his word says. We see that the devil thought that through these judgments he's going to cause Job to speak against God. But God knew Job. And he knew exactly what he was going to, get, uh, to do. That ain't the point. This is a courtroom that we're in right now, so to speak. And there has to be proof and there's going to be proof. It's not only judgment of the heart. It's a judgment of the mouth that proves what's in the heart. Because it says in Matthew 12 and 34 again, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So if you want to change your heart, pay attention to your tongue. And if you have made a decision to know that you've spoken against the word of God, and you've rejected the words of God, and uh, you repent, then God will honor that. Even if you say it, you can turn around and renounce it. I don't accept that. I don't believe that. And then go ahead and declare that you what you do believe and start confessing the Word of God right then. Watching your tongue, folks, is very important because in so doing, you're watching your heart. When you repent of those things that you say, you're making a conscious decision to reject something that's in your heart that don't belong there. God honors that. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1 and 7. Decisions have to be made to be cleansed. When you're cleansing your heart, it's because you're making a decision. God brings us through trials so that we can face these decisions. We can never face them any other way. Job could never have faced the decisions that he did without that trial he went through. He would have never been cleansed and matured in the Lord. And he would have never discovered the self-righteousness that was hiding in his heart without all of, all of that fire trial that he went through. So the prosecutor accused, the Lord defended, and Job was found faultless up to that point. Job chapter 3 and verse 25. For the thing which I fear cometh upon me, and that which I am afraid of cometh unto me. Fear is faith in the curse, and that's not in the gospel. If you have faith, Jesus said, according to your faith, be it done unto you. So be careful of fear and thoughts, because they generally come out of your mouth. And when they come out of your mouth, there's something to be convicted of right there. It, because by thy words thou shalt be condemned, Matthew 12 and 37. And we sit there and we know that the prosecutor is sitting there to condemn us in the courtroom of heaven. He is the His job is to be the accuser of the brethren. And day and night he does that before the Lord until the Lord comes to the point when he's had enough. And frankly, because the saints are walking in their sanctification, then what happens? The Lord casts him down then, for he's God for that day. Now, here's another courtroom example over in Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3 and verse 1. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to be his adversary or accuser. Now, we know that Joshua represents Jesus, the body of Christ. 
And here we have Satan. He was standing at the right hand of Joshua. He represented the body of Christ, which puts him on the left hand of God. And Satan stands on the left hand of the Lord. Verse 2, And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Yea, the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? And in many places of the scriptures it says the Lord is God. So the Father is the judge. The Lord is our defender. He's our defense attorney. And I believe it was Jesus that said the Lord rebuked thee. So what does a chosen Jerusalem have to do with Joshua being accused here? Well, because they represent the same thing, they are the chosen people of God. Verse 3, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Now garments over in the New Testament represents the righteous acts of the saints, as we see in uh, Revelation. And as the garments of the bride in Revelation 19 and 8. So we're making our garments as we go along by our works. And the Bible also tells us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof in Romans 13 and 14. So we're putting on the works and the nature of Christ. But Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. He was a sinner, and he needed to be saved by God's grace. Verse 4, And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take the filthy garments from off him, and unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with rich apparel. Well, there's grace right there. This is grace that can only come to those who got faith. For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. So your faith is proof of what you say. If you've got faith, you're going to say it, right? For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession. Confession there in the Greek is homo logeo, and it means speak the same as. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, Romans 10 and 10. How do we get the benefits of the salvation that's real broad, spirit, soul, body, circumstances, and on and on? Well, we get that by believing and confessing the promises of God. And it doesn't make any difference what area of our life those promises will cover, every one of them. Believing and confessing the promises gives us the benefit. That's how you prove faith, all right? It says in James chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, Faith, if it have not works, is dead. I by my works will show thee my faith, James said. And it's real important for us to receive this grace that is being offered to Joshua here or to the body of Christ. We have faith, and it's proven faith. And if you want the grace of God, speak it. Confess it before men if you want it. If you don't, then just let it be in your heart. Let there be no proof of your faith. Just do nothing. Jesus asked for proof of faith from the people that he healed, delivered, and so on. He always asked them to do something. Zechariah 3 and 5, And I said, Let them set a clean mitre upon his head. That's the renewed mind of Christ. So they set a clean mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord protested unto Joshua, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, 
if thou wilt walk in my ways, and if thou wilt keep my charge, here's the conditions, okay? Then thou also shalt judge my house, and shalt also keep my court. And I will give thee a place of access among these that stand by. The courtroom suspense of the prosecutor, Satan, or the accuser, and the defense attorney, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going on day and night, 365 days a year, 24-7. And what's he using? Matthew 12 and 37. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. So we should be very slow to speak. And you know, most of us need God's help to do that. And we should also ask Him, the Lord, to set a watch before our lips so that we don't speak things that's going to bring judgment on us. But when we do speak things and recall afterwards that the Scripture doesn't say that, we ought to cast those words down and renounce them right then. God will honor that. But unfortunately, we don't always come to the place where we have access among those that stand because many of God's people continue to confess contrary to the Word of God. They add to and they take away from the Word of God, and it brings a curse on them. In number 14, we see a good example of that. Here we got all the witnesses came back from spying out the nations, and they brought a bad report. All but two of them did anyway. The heart of the people was cast down because of that bad report, and they began to confess that they were all going to die right there in the wilderness. God was not a happy God. He was real displeased with them. Numbers 14 and 11, And the Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me for all the signs which I have wrought among them? That's what he calls despising him, not believing in him, not believing the word that he gave them. That was a promise to bring them to the land of milk and honey and to bring them through the wilderness. They didn't believe that. Here they were. They kept on confessing and proclaiming that God brought them into the wilderness to kill them right there. And when the signs are wrought, that's when God's people become responsible. When you see those signs, you ought to repent and start confessing the word of God right then. Verse 12, I will smite them with the pestilence and disinherit them and will make of thee a nation greater and mightier than they. Well, as you know, as the story goes, Moses, who was a type and shadow of Jesus, he interceded for the people of God, and God pardoned them for the moment. Numbers 14 and 20, And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to thy word, because all those men that have seen my glory and my signs, which I wrought in Egypt, and in the wilderness yet have tempted me these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice. Surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that despised me see it. God swearing to him right there. All his promises are conditional. They're conditioned on faith. They despised him when they didn't believe him. That's according to what his word was right there. Verse 28, Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord, Surely as ye have spoken in mine ears, so will I do to you. He didn't bring them to the sanctification that we saw over in Zechariah. 
the gift of sanctification and holiness that was given to the body of Christ through Jesus Christ. He didn't bring them to that place because they continually spoke against him. Now, we're warned that the curse is going to come on us if we continue to add to and take away from God's word. Revelation 22 and 18 says, I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto them, God shall add unto him the plagues which are written in this book. Well, how can we add to the word of the prophecy of this book? Religion does it all the time. Anything you add to God's word is leaven. Matthew 16, 6 says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. They added all their religious ideas to God's word and things that made it easier for their flesh. They were not self-crucifying words like the word of God is. They made it easy on the flesh. God ain't pleased when that happens either. There's a lot of humanism in God's people that explains God away with modern-day flesh-pleasing, irritated doctrine because they permit us to live. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3. You know, but when we just look at the pure Word of God, we see that the Word of God expects us to walk in the steps of Jesus Christ and in the way of His early disciples as well as in the power over sin, sickness, and the curse. And when we see that this is what God passed on to us as disciples of Jesus Christ, and we begin to add our humanistic ideas and ways, then we begin to be normal, just like everybody else around us. And as time passes, we begin to not want to be rejected by the world. We want to fit right in with them. So we water down the Word of God with our own ideas. But you see, God says we don't want to add to His Word, not one jot or tittle. Revelation 22 and 19. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and out of the holy city, which are written in this book. You don't want to take nothing away from what God says. So you need to be, we all need to be careful and fearful before the Lord not to change his word one way or the other in what we say, think, and walk. We are commanded of the Lord to walk as disciples of Jesus Christ. And that's a learner and a follower of Jesus Christ. In our words, if we add to or take away from the word, we can expect nothing but the curse, okay? The devil is not only there as the prosecutor, but he's there as the persecutor and executor of the curse. The Lord Jesus wants to be our defense attorney. But that devil is constantly prosecuting us before the court of heaven, according to what we say. And when we add to or take away from God's word, he's got the right to do that. That's how we come into judgment. uh, The scriptures tell us that in Matthew 12 and 36 and 37. Now over in John 14 and 16, it says, And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may be with you forever. What's he talking about, another comforter? Well, obviously the Lord means that he is a comforter, right? But that the Holy Spirit is another comforter. Verse 17, Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, for it beholdeth him not, neither knoweth him. Ye know him, 
for he abideth with you and shall be in you. That word comforter in the Greek, parakletos, that's a courtroom word. And it actually means very similar to a defense attorney. It's used in a court of law as a defense attorney. That word parakletos actually means call to one side as a help. The Lord Jesus himself is our mediator between us and the judge, okay? 1 Timothy 2 and 5 tells us that. He comes to our side to be our helper. He went away in order to send the Holy Spirit to us. 1 John 2 and 1, My little children, these things write I unto you that you may not sin. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. That word advocate is the same word, parakletos. And we see that Jesus is our advocate, the one who defends us before the judge. And boy, do we ever need it. (laughs) We see that same thing over in Hebrews with Jesus as the high priest, right? Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, that's an invitation right there, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, or to speak the same as even Jesus. We are partakers of a heavenly invitation. So we've been invited to heaven. We've been invited to enter into the kingdom of heaven while we're still here on earth. And you know the kingdom of heaven is in the midst of you, Jesus said. He said he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And when you enter more into Jesus Christ, you're entering more into the kingdom of God and more into heavenly places. These blessings are in Christ Jesus. So we are partakers of this heavenly calling, this invitation to come and to partake in everything in Christ. That word confession means to speak the same as. That is the same, just like Jesus spoke. The same as the word of God speaks. And if you remember, we're commanded not to add to or to take away from the word. And confession represents that. Our speech being in agreement with God. And as our speech is in agreement with God, the Lord Jesus is able to confess us before the Father, praise God. Matthew 10 and 32, Everyone therefore who shall confess me before men, him will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So the Lord expects us to agree with the word of God before men, right? And that's a trial because we want to be accepted by the world. And we know that they're not going to understand us. But you know what? The Lord demands that we confess him before men. Now, when he uses that word men, he's not referring to the saints or the brethren, but to the world is what he's talking about. He wants a witness to the world. He wants us to confess him and agree with what his word says before the whole world in the midst of our trial. And like Job, who was being tried and prosecuted, even uh, though he might not have known it, he was being cross-prosecuted for the words that he spake in the heavenly court. And now, 
We have authority here. What things soever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And what things soever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Praise God. Matthew 18 and 18. How's that happen? Well, what you say and what you do before men is either confessed or denied before God by Jesus. So we are the ones that actually create our own future in a way. We walk by grace and we create a good future. Or we walk according to the world and to sin and speaking contrary to God. And we create a bad future for ourselves. It says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that have it shall eat the fruit thereof. Proverbs 18 21. So you need to be very careful that we say everything that the Bible says before men. We know that we've got grace for our ignorance, right? As we saw over in Zechariah 3. Uh, but when we understand what God's will is to him, therefore, that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him, it's a sin, James 4 and 17. We become responsible then. We have a high priest of our confession because he wants to bring an offering before our Father. Hebrews 4 and 14 says, Having then a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but one that hath been in all points tempted, like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with boldness unto the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help us in time of need. Now he's inferring here to the way we draw near to the throne of grace with boldness. And that's obviously by faith in the sacrifice of Jesus because there ain't no other way to come before God. So we also, we hold fast our confession, speak the same as, and then we have this high priest who has enabled us to come before the Father. Hebrews 8 and 1. Now in the things which are, which we are saying, the chief point is this. We have such a high priest who sat down on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heavens. And as you can see, Jesus sitting on the right hand of the Father. And the devil, as we saw in Zechariah 3, is sitting on the left hand of the judge. And this is what the scriptures teach about the court of heaven. And we're on trial all the time. And that with the heart man believeth unto righteousness. And with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10.10. So we confess the mercy and the grace of God. We confess the promises of God in our faith. Romans 3 and 4 says, Let God be found true, but every man a liar. And that justifies us in our words, just like the Bible says. So we are justified, or we are counted righteous, every time that we agree with his word. And so we can see that Satan is not only the prosecutor, but he's the executor too. He executes a curse upon those who speak a curse. Remember what Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Hebrews 8 and 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, wherefore it is necessary that this high priest also have somewhat to offer. Jesus is the high priest, and he offers sacrifices to the Father from us. But he, he must have something to offer. The Hebrews 13 gives revelation what that is. Hebrews 13 and 15, Through him, then let us offer up a sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of the lips. 
which make confession to his name. And that's talking about the sacrifice that we give to the high priest of our confession. And that's what the high priest offers before the Father. No confession, no offering. Bad confession, you give the prosecutor a right to accuse you. So we've got to continually confess or speak the same as the Lord. Not only in church, but wherever we go, we've got to agree with the Word of God. Now, that word praise is used in the New Testament to refer only to our praises to God. And it's used very seldom in the New Testament. And it means of a narration, of a commendation, or a praise to boast about what God has done and said. So here we are. We're supposed to be bragging on God to everybody. Praise is not just singing songs in church. And you can brag about some of the things God has done in some of the songs that you sing in church. However, the scripture here says continually, not only in the church, but continually. And it's easy to confess God before the brethren. But are you going to confess him before men as Jesus commanded? That's the important thing. Well, folks, I'm out of time. And uh, I'd like to say that we just watch our lips speak only as an oracle of God. And you'll see mighty miracles in the days ahead if you do it. Also, I wanted to say a little bit about what I talked about Franklin Hall last week. Uh, that is a real good book on fasting. But there are some things in there you need to be aware of that, that you know, not scriptural. He, he talks about uh, that water fasting is not uh, biblical. Well, it is. There have been lots of people that have fasted well over three days. Uh, matter of fact, David Eels fasted one time 14 days without any water. Read about a Chinese guy that was in prison over in China, Christian, that fasted over 100 days with the, or 75 days without water and food. And so it could be done, but it has to be God. And so just be careful with the things that we talk about. Make sure they line up with the Word of God. I try to give you the things just to, to, to get you pumped up and, and encouraged to fast and to pray because I know how powerful it can be. And so just take that Word and go with it. Praise God. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful testimony and this wonderful Word that you've given us. And uh, we thank you, Lord, that you are going to set a watch before our lips and to uh, help us out in this regards of uh, watching our, uh, confessing with our mouth, Lord. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Well, good night, saints, and we'll see you next week, God willing. Can quench my thirsting soul, purest water made me whole. Let your streams of mercy flow, oh Jesus, I trust in you. Though the mountains fall into the sea, though the rivers rise, I still believe. For oh, your mercy stands and your word is true, oh Jesus, I trust in you. And when I face that darkest night, what will be my guiding light? The shining rays of red and white. Jesus, I trust in you. O oh, sacred heart.
Just in. 